Please turn them in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Back to Ephesians, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. The letter of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Ephesus. Paul wrote this while he was under house arrest in Rome, and he wrote it to lay a solid doctrinal foundation for these believers so they could then live out those doctrines for the glory of God. We're now in the middle of the application section of this letter, and it's been very challenging, right? And the call is to rise to the challenge because we love Christ. And love for Christ compels us to continue on in our quest to honor Him with our fast and fading life. Recently, Paul's been imploring us to be spirit-filled Christians who do the will of God as found in the Word of God. Generally, this is seen in many, many ways, but specifically and in context, Paul has told us that God's will for us in Christ is to be filled with the Spirit, to sing in the heart and out loud, to give thanks always for all things, and then to submit to one another in the fear of God. After that, Paul had a word for Spirit-filled wives who were doing the will of God, and then he had some words for Spirit-filled husbands who were doing the will of God. Remember that? I'm going to remind you. First, By way of reminder, the call for wives was to submit to their husbands. If you remember, the word submit is a Greek word, hupotasso, and it means to line up under, to arrange under, and to rank under. This calling is found in numerous places besides here, and it's clear. I mean, it can't be denied. It can't be overlooked. Now, please remember that biblically, men and women are equal right? They're absolutely equal in the eyes of God in value and in dignity, but they're also different. See, they have different roles as designed by God. So this isn't saying that women are less important or that women aren't equal to men or that men are in any way superior to women. Not at all. It's talking about the role relationship which God has established for husbands and for wives in the Bible. The call for wives is to submit. Now remember, submission does not mean that the wife becomes a slave. (laughs) Submission does not mean that the wife never opens her mouth, never has an opinion, and never gives any advice. Submission does not mean that the wife becomes a wallflower who folds up and allows her abilities to fall by the wayside. Submission does not mean that the wife becomes a doormat for the husband. Not at all, no. Instead, submission indicates that it's the wife's responsibility to choose to be submissive. See, this is a command for the wife to submit willingly and to submit lovingly. It's a call to do this because you desire to, as a choice that you make, that you choose to do as a woman of God. Also, submission is to be a constant lifestyle of the wife, not just when it's convenient. Also, the wife's submission to her husband isn't to be conditioned by her husband's abilities, talents, wisdom, education, or spiritual state. No, because regardless of all that, the call still remains the call to submit. On top of that, submission emphasizes what the wife should do, not what the wife shouldn't do. And then finally, submission involves the wife's attitudes as well as her action. See, it's an inner quality of gentleness and of godliness that affirms, that chooses to affirm the leadership of the husband. This all is to be done as to the Lord, which means that wives will answer to God for how well they submit to their husbands. Now, please remember that a wife's submission only goes so far as it glorifies God. 
So if submitting to your husband would mean that you wouldn't glorify God, then you can't submit. And that's the qualifier, right? If your submission to your husband would be a clear sin against God and his word, of course. But just remember, wives, God is watching you, right? God sees you and God will reward you for honoring him and for doing what he wants you to do, for doing what he calls you to do as a spirit-filled wife. At the end of chapter 5, Paul also adds these words, let the wife see that she respects her husband. The Greek word used here refers to honor, to reverence, to respect, to esteeming your husband. And if for nothing else, because that's your calling from God. Submit as unto the Lord and respect your husband. So that's the first reminder. All right, what about the husbands? As we saw, husbands are called to both lead and to love their wives. As Paul noted, husbands are the heads and They're called to lead the wife and the family like Christ leads the church. Okay, so how does Christ lead the church? Well, many ways. One, he led by example. See, he didn't just say how you ought to live, but he showed it in his own life. See, he was an example of what the disciples were called to be like. He gave his disciples a pattern to follow after. Husbands are called to be like that. Note also that as a leader and head, Jesus was a servant. Philippians 2.6 says that Jesus humbled himself and made himself of no reputation so that he could die to redeem his church. And husbands are called to do the same for their wives and for their families. The call then? To be the family's biggest servant. To be humble, to be godly, to be selfless, and to show them what Christ is like tangibly, a servant. <clears throat> Note also that Jesus was with those that he led. He spent time with them. He was a significant part of their lives. He truly was with them. Also, note that Jesus carefully and purposely instructed his disciples as their leader. To do this, you need to be learning yourself, husbands. To to do this, you need to be growing and thirsting after God yourselves. And, And that's your call as husbands. I mean, how can you lead if you're more spiritually immature than your wife? That's not possible, see. Note also that Christ led his disciples by making decisions and by delegating responsibility to them. Yes, husbands, you and your wife are a team. Absolutely, you're a team. But you're the leader of the team, ultimately. And ultimate responsibility falls on your shoulders. So step up and shoulder the load for the glory of God. That means that in the spiritual issues, in the things that will either harm or help the family... In the issues that have real and significant and eternal ramifications, the the responsibility is on you, husbands. And that requires godly wisdom and Christ-like leadership. Peter tells us that a good husband who's leading well will live with his wife in an understanding way. That's true leadership. Okay, so what does that mean? It speaks of intimacy, of closeness, and of sensitivity. It speaks against the husband and wife merely living together where there's no communication, no intimacy, no heartfelt love, no oneness. And it speaks against the husband and wife living together as virtual strangers. No, no, no. No. Instead, there's to be deep sexual and emotional intimacy, true oneness, radical commitment, and a sharing together of each other, and also a deep unity with one another. And that's on us husbands to make sure that that happens in our marriages. 
in essence, <coughs> Peter says, hey, guys, study your wife. Guys, husbands, get to know what makes your wife tick. Figure out how her mind works, or at least die trying. Anybody? Right? <laughs> Learn what her gifts are, what her desires and talents are, what her hopes and dreams are. Know her. So every husband needs to become an avid student of his wife. That's a command. And this is what good and godly leaders like Christ do. All right, what else for husbands? Love your wives. How? Like Christ loved the church. Oh, is that all? What a calling. I mean, he died for us. He died for the church. And you're called to do that every day for your wife. Every day. Deny yourself and love her. Put her needs first. Sacrifice for her. Forgive her. Serve her. Give yourself to her. Put her first and you second. Bleed for her. Suffer for her. Die for her. And that will show in how you treat her day in and day out in your marriage. In the little things and also in the big things. Give yourself to her. That's the call. Loving our wives also means that we husbands are called to do everything that we can to lead our wives to holiness, to purity, and to godliness. That means that we give our wives every opportunity to take the word in so that it can then do its work in her heart. It means that we are certain to never lead our wives into any sin. It means that we don't irritate her or embitter her so that she falls into the temptation of anger. It means that we never lead her into anything that would produce sin in her life as much as we possibly can. Uh, make sure that that doesn't happen. It means that we lead by example, that we are men of God, that we fight sin and we stop living in sin. See, loving your wife means that you want your wife to be as glorious to God as possible when your earthly time with her is done. And so you're going to do all you can to make sure of that. Also, loving your wife means that you're called to treat your wife with the same preoccupation that you give to yourself because guess what you go together and you're one hey your wife needs a man of god that's what she needs she needs someone who will care for her honor her sacrifice for her lead her love her show her affection tenderness care passion and so on is that true of you as one said loving your wife means that you treat your wife as you would an expensive useful sensitive instrument rather than a cheap useless indestructible tool So you cherish her and you nourish her and you bring out the best in her and you lead her closer to Christ as much as you can and you show her what Christ is like. Love her and lead her. That's all. That was supposed to be funny. (laughs) That's all. (laughs) What a calling. What a calling. But it is our calling. And we must rise to the challenge. Look what Paul says next in 6.1. Children. Man, I wish all the children were here. (laughs) Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. We're going to stop here for now, and here Paul turns from dealing with husbands and wives to dealing with children. The call for children to obey their parents. That's the call. The word obey literally means to hear under or to listen under. And the sense of the word is to listen with attentiveness and then to respond positively to what's heard in obedience. So the word implies really listening with a readiness to execute and to obey that which is requested. 
The word also implies an inward attitude of respect and honor that goes along with the external act of obedience. Here, children are called to do this to obey their parents in the Lord. Note that by saying in the Lord, Paul doesn't mean (coughs) obey your parents only if they are in the Lord. That's not what it means. Instead, Paul is telling children that it's their duty in the Lord to obey their parents. In other words, to please the Lord, you must obey your parents. So the attitude of spirit-filled children should be this. Out of thankfulness to God and based on my love for God, I gladly submit to the authority that he's put over me for my good. And so we find that a child's obedience to his parents should should be the result of his desire to please his Lord. That means that anything that would displease God is the exception to this command. In other words, because Scripture interprets Scripture then we know that if your parents commanded you to do something that's a clear violation of Scripture, you can't do that. As Peter said in Acts 5.21, we must obey God rather than men. So clearly, children aren't commanded to obey their parents if their parents tell them to disobey God. That said, the call is for children to obey their parents as much as they possibly can as unto the Lord. Jesus is the perfect example for this in Luke 2.51. He, Jesus as a boy went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. So think about that. I mean, really try to think about that. Jesus himself subjected himself to his parents, the very parents that he created. Think about that. And if he himself did that, how much more children who aren't God? See? And so this is the order that God has ordained. Kids, I see a couple. Even if you think your parents are crazy. Even if you think your parents don't remotely understand. Even if you think your parents are ancient relics from ages and ages ago. The call remains the call, obey. Prayerfully, this will be easier to do if your parents are Christians. But if not, obey as much as you can for the glory of God. For perhaps your godly obedience will be used by God to reach your parents for the Lord. That said, no matter what, your obedience to your parents greatly pleases your God who is watching you and nothing is better than that. Nothing. Nothing is better than pleasing God. God sees, God knows, God won't forget. Note that there comes a point where you move out from under your parents' authority and you're no longer obligated to obey them. I think 30 is about the right age. 30? I I think 30. So, um, wise parents let the reins go gradually so that a young person assumes more and more responsibility for his own life until he's out of his home. They do this while their child is still under their care so that they can watch him and guard him and guide him or her along. And then one day they'll be old enough and mature enough to live apart from their parents' direct authority. Oh yeah, the role of the parents is still massive once the children become adults, but it's just different. Again, massive, but but different. Note that Paul adds, for this is right. In other words, this is God's righteous design. This is his template for a family life of order rather than disorder and chaos. It's interesting that virtually every culture and society recognizes and is built upon the premise that children are to respect and they are to obey their parents. They know this innately because this is the right thing according to God. 
In Romans 1.30, Paul places disobedience to parents as one of the wretched sins that brings down a society and that causes God to give people over to a debased mind. So this is very serious, and to not do this as unto the Lord is sinful, and it will indeed lead to great trouble for the child. See, disobeying parents is where it starts, and it then leads to disobeying all other kinds of authority later on, which then leads to ruin, and I've seen it many, many times. This is serious. See, it's right for children to obey their parents. It's good to remember, not just for the children, but also for the parents, question. Should I insist that my child obey? What's the answer? Yes, because it's right. And so when a young mother can't bring herself to discipline her child, when a father won't supply the time or attention to discipline, or when the latest child-rearing book has made us question whether we should just ignore some improper outburst from a child, in each of those moments, we need the straightforward simplicity of the Word of God. See, if we love our children too much to require them to do what's right, then we haven't really loved them enough. This is right. And we all need to not only believe it, but to treat it as such. In verse 2, Paul continues with this thought by noting that this is the first commandment with a promise. Look, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Here, Paul refers back to the Ten Commandments and he affirms its importance and application for us today. This is the fifth of the Ten Commandments, but look, It's the first commandment dealing with human relationships. See, the first four deal with one's relationship to God, and there is indeed promise there. But this is the first of the commandments that deal with human relationships. And among those commandments, this is the first one with a promise. Why? Because this is at the core of the family, which is at the core of the church, which is at the core of society. And as one said, A generation of undisciplined, disrespectful, rebellious, disobedient children will destroy families, churches, and nations. That's right. That's right. So again, this is vitally important. So what's the commandment that Paul reaffirms here in the New Testament and that still applies to us today? This, to honor, he already said obey, and now he says to honor your father and mother. The Greek word for honor means to revere, to prize, and to value. So honor is giving respect, not only for merit, but also for rank. So look, obedience is the duty. Honor is the disposition. And children of all ages are called to honor their parents, regardless of whether or not their parents deserve honor. It speaks of having respect and esteem for your parents because of their position. The opposite of honoring your parents would be to show contempt for them, to despise them in your heart, to be rude and to be ungrateful towards them. See, it's your heart attitude that matters. And if you're fighting against honoring your parents, then there's a sin issue that needs to be dealt with because the call here is clear. For again, it wasn't just a commandment to obey in the Old Testament. But here, Paul reaffirms its application for us today because this is what spirit-filled children do. Note that it comes with a promise, what? That it may go well with you and that you may live long on the earth, verse 3. So not only is this commanded by God, but look, this will affect how well and how long a child lives. Now, please understand, 
This is not an ironclad rule, right? This is a general principle, and there are several reasons for it. One, a child who obeys his parents will regularly be warned from harm's way. That's true. Generally speaking, the obedient and parent-honoring child will experience fewer accidents and less physical trauma from such things as high places and sharp objects because his parents warned him about those things and he obeyed what his parents warned him about. Isn't that true? Come on, you with me? It's true. Hey, pretty much every time I got hurt as a child was because I disobeyed my parents. John, don't jump off the back of the couch. Why not, Mom? Because you'll break your ankle. Result? Broken ankle. John, don't play with those matches. Why not? Because you'll scorch your eyebrows and your eyelashes. Result? True story. Scorched eyebrows and eyelashes. There's a whole thing with that. John, don't play golf in the front yard. I shouldn't have played golf ever, anytime, no matter what. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Because you're going to break something. Result? Neighbor's window broken. It's true. This principle stands. Another reason that this general principle is true is because an obedient child will be spared the bad habits and the bad friends that tend to ruin and shorten life. Stay away from that person. I'm telling you. I'm warning you. Stay away from that person. Hey, listening to mom and dad on this can be the difference between jail, addiction, getting shot, and a shortened and ruined life or not. It's true. For most of us, not honoring and obeying our parents is a thing that's caused most of our problems in our early lives that even might still have ramifications today. So yeah, this general principle is indeed true. The final reason that this general principle is true is a simple fact that the child who honors and obeys his parents is far more likely to develop healthy character traits, while a disobedient child is more likely to develop harmful patterns in his life. And this impacts the quality of his or her life most definitely. So yeah, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth is true because God says it's true and also because this is how it plays out generally speaking because God knows what he's saying. Warren Wiersbe says that this doesn't mean that everyone who died young dishonored his parents. No. It's a general principle. When children obey their parents in the Lord, they will escape a good deal of sin and danger and thus avoid the things that could threaten or shorten their lives. But life is not measured only by quantity of time. It's also measured by quality of experience. God enriches the life of the obedient child no matter how long he may live on the earth. Sin always robs us. Obedience always enriches us. And that's true. That's absolutely true. So children, obey your parents for the glory of God as much as you can and always honor them as unto God the Lord. That's true wisdom. And that will not only enrich your life, generally speaking, but it will also glorify and please the God whom you love. Well, after this, Paul moves on to fathers. Ready? Look what he says in verse 4. You fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So the call for fathers is this. Don't provoke your children to wrath. And now we've moved from husbands to wives to children and now to fathers. We ask, okay, but what about mothers? Are mothers off the hook here? I mean, it specifically says fathers. So question, does this mean that the mothers are allowed to provoke their children to wrath? What's the answer? 
No, no, no. And while this word for fathers usually refers to the male parent in the home, it was also sometimes used of parents in general, which is clearly the case here. In Hebrews eleven twenty four, the word is used to describe Moses' parents. And here in Ephesians, it's used in the same way. See, by using the term fathers, Paul is recognizing the father's role as the head of the home, but not to the exclusion of mothers. In verse 1, it says, children, obey your parents. And implied here in verse 4 is, parents, do this with your children. So he's talking about mothers and fathers here, even though he singles out fathers. And the call is clear. Don't provoke your children to wrath. What does that mean? Well, the word provoke has the idea of irritating your children. It has the idea of making them angry underneath, (coughs) exasperating them, embittering them, disheartening them. So they become frustrated and discouraged and resentful. See, Children are naturally rebellious because the sinful nature of Adam has been passed down to them. And the call is for us to give our kids no unnecessary justification to that already rebellious heart. So, instead of provoking them to anger, we are called to spur them on to godliness, to holiness, and to righteousness. But look, sinful behavior in parents leads to angry, rebellious, resentful children. And so as parents, we are called to be as godly as possible in our parenting and in our own lives so that those things that provoke our children to anger are minimized in us. (coughs) The truth is this. We have a lot of angry children all around us in our society. A lot of angry children. And our call as parents is to not do that to our own children kids. Why? Because when we provoke them like this because of our own sinful behavior and because of our own ungodly parenting, it leads to anger, which leads our children away from the Lord. So the call is for fathers, for parents, to not provoke your children to wrath, to anger, and to resentment. So question, how do you do that so that we can know what not to do? Well, a book by a man named Lou Priolo called The Heart of Anger In that book, he lists over 20 things that provoke our children to wrath. And all those things on the list have scriptural backing, especially from the book of Proverbs. Here's 23 things on that list. Things that provoke our children to wrath that we must constantly be fighting against. Are you ready? One, lack of marital harmony. See, have a bad marriage and just watch what it does to the children for the bad. Be a bad husband, be an ungodly wife, fight in front of the kids, nag and belittle and refuse to do what God calls you to do in your marriage, and it will definitely lead your child down a road of bitterness, anger, stubbornness, and rebellion. Be ungodly to your spouse and watch how it embitters your kids. Do you do that? That's not good. Two, establishing and maintaining a child-centered home. Put your child first above everyone and everything else, including God, and it will definitely provoke your children to wrath. Coddle them. Give them everything that they want. Let them run the house. Give in to their every demand. And watch as it produces ungodliness and selfishness in their hearts. Make excuses for their bad behavior. Maintain their innocence and blame everything on everyone else. Build everything around them, and that'll do it. That's not good. Three, (coughs) model sinful anger. 
See, our children take on many of our characteristics as parents, and if we're always bursting out in anger, it's most likely that they will as well. And again, that's not good, and it will definitely negatively affect your child. Four, scolding. Talking about losing your temper, lashing out at your child. Instead of talking to him or her in a godly manner, and instead of disciplining him or her in a godly manner according to the Word of God, just yell and scream and be out of control with your child. Do that, and it will definitely provoke your child to anger, which is sinful. Five, being inconsistent with discipline. One parent gets angry at something while the other one doesn't. Talk about confusing and frustrating for the child. Or else, one thing bothers you one day that doesn't bother you the next. Oh yeah, that'll provoke your child to anger most definitely. Why? Because they never know what the standard is. And how can they really function unless they know the standard? Six, having double standards where you lay down the law for your child, but you don't live by it yourself. Stop swearing while you cuss and swear all the time. Go to church while you stay away and watch the game. That'll provoke them. That'll make them angry and bitter. That'll definitely harm them. Hypocrisy is very exasperating indeed. Seven, being legalistic. Imposing laws on your children that are impossible to keep. Nitpick at every little thing and come down hard on the little things that don't really matter. That'll exasperate your children. Eight, not admitting when you're wrong and not ever asking for forgiveness. Isn't that a big year or what? You know? How many of us had parents who could never say that they were sorry? That is so, so sinful. That'll most definitely cause a root of bitterness in a child (coughs) that'll have lasting ramifications for the bad. Pride does this, and it teaches our own kids to be prideful, which is the root sin of all sin. Nine, constantly finding fault. Instead of praising them, always, always, always finding something wrong with them. Reprove sin, absolutely. But if you're always finding fault with your child and you're never praising them, you're never encouraging them, it'll provoke them to wrath most definitely. Go ahead. Remind them all the time that they'll never amount to anything. Remind them all the time that they're not any good. They're, they're useless. They're in the way. Don't give them any approval. Don't, don't do any nice things for them. Don't honor them in any way. That'll provoke them to anger. That'll provoke them to bitterness, absolutely. Ten, parents reversing God-given roles. In other words, where the husband fails to be a godly leader and lover of his wife when the wife refuses to submit to and respect her husband. See, when things aren't biblical in the home, that will provoke your children to wrath. Why? Because it's not biblical and it's not best and God knows what's best. And when things are off in this manner, it'll affect the whole family for the worse. 11, not listening to your child's opinion or taking his or her side of the story seriously. No, just treat them like they don't matter. Don't listen to them. Don't communicate with them. Be insensitive to them. That'll provoke them to wrath. 12, comparing them to others. Please, please, please don't do that. Every child's unique. And when you compare your child with others, it's a sure way to either discourage them way too much or to elevate them above others way too much. And both are harmful. 13, not, not making time just to talk. Why? Because you can't build a relationship with your child without communicating with him or her. When was the last time you really sat down and talked with your child? Hey, ignore them. Don't spend time with them. And then watch as they are provoked to wrath and as they turn to other people to fulfill their needs instead of you, their parents. That's scary. Fourteen, not praising or encouraging your child when appropriate 
We've already mentioned that. 15, failing to keep your promises. I discovered this early on. I'd make a promise to my daughter and something would come up and it would break her little heart. Seriously, it, it, was, it was absolutely horrible. I learned to make very few promises. And when I did make a promise, I'd better keep it or else it would provoke my child to bitterness and discouragement and cynicism and sadness and a lack of respect and thoughts of being unloved. Very harmful and hurtful to them. 16, chastening them in front of others. No, instead, reprove them in private, right? Matthew 18. See, embarrassing your child in front of others will provoke them to wrath most definitely. 17, not allowing enough freedom. Look, if you want to really frustrate your child, fence him in. Don't trust him. Don't give them enough opportunity to develop their own independence so that they can find out who they truly are. No, stifle them, smother them. Always be nosy about every little thing. One commentator said it like this. If you overprotect them, you'll exasperate them. And an exasperated child is an angry child. And an angry child isn't going to have a loving relationship with his parents. 18. Allowing too much freedom. That's the other side, right? Not guarding them. Not protecting them enough. Not helping them make God-honoring decisions. That too will provoke them to wrath. As Priolo says, children who grow up in homes with too much freedom and not enough discipline may quickly conclude that they are not truly loved by their parents. So be careful. Don't get out of balance here. 19, mocking your child, ridiculing them, teasing them, making fun of their inadequacies, body size, intelligence, abilities. We should know this by now. So wrong. So sinful. So ungodly. 20, abusing them physically and also with your words. Physical cruelty ought to be obvious. Never ever do that. Bitter words might not be as obvious. Your tongue is a fire and it can destroy your children if you're not careful. So, hey, be careful. 21, ridiculing or name-calling. Be careful, please, be careful what you call your child. Don't be degrading. Don't mock their physical features. Don't embarrass or shame them by what you call them. That provokes them to wrath. Of course it does. 22, (coughs) unrealistic expectations. Push them in an area of achievement and just keep pushing and pushing and pushing until they never have a sense of having ever accomplished anything where nothing is ever enough. If they get C's, you demand B's. If they get B's, you demand A's. You demand A's, but then you demand all A's, and they can't ever truly satisfy you. Some parents literally crush their children with pressure, school, sports, academic achievement, music, whatever it is. The child inevitably gets very, very bitter. Please don't do that. 23, practicing favoritism. Favor one child over the other, compare them and see one that's always lacking, have one standard for one and another for another child, that'll provoke them to wrath. Are we done now? What do you think? Is that good enough for now? I mean, what a list. This ought to keep us busy for a while. There are other things that provoke our children to wrath. Sin. Sin provokes our children to wrath. This will suffice for now, but it all boils down to sin. As a parent, you must be sure to do your best to be a man or woman of God and how you respond and react to your children because sin provokes them to wrath. So be godly more and more. Be like Christ more and more. Don't be a hypocrite because hypocrisy will drive them away from you because why should they respect a hypocrite? 
Show a godly example to your children so they can see the reality of Christ in you and spur your child on to love Christ through your words and through your deeds. What a responsibility. What a calling. But it's ours, and it's very serious. I mean, God's entrusted your children's souls into your care. This is serious. Let me ask you, are you provoking your children to wrath today? Fight it. Battle it for the glory of God and for the good of our precious children. Look what Paul adds, two things. You thought we were done, we're not done. First, <clears throat> bring them up in the training of the Lord, verse 4. See, there's something foundational that we as parents need to understand, and that is this, that while children may be really cute when they come into the world, they are not innocent with regard to evil. Is that not self-evident? I mean, this is important for us to understand. Why? Because the seed of every known sin is planted deep into the heart of every child because every child is born with a sinful nature and the Bible is very clear about that. They aren't innocent when they are born. Man, they're messed up. And the drive to sin is embedded in their natures and it's a fierce drive. One preacher said that they don't come into the world seeking God and righteousness. They come into the world seeking the fulfillment of their sinful desires. And don't we know that? What's a common baby's first word? No! They're rebellious. They're demanding. They get angry easily. They're sinners. And our call as God, godly spirit-filled parents is to drive that sin far from them, to teach them the truth of God and to discipline them in the ways of the Lord. The Bible says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but a rod of righteousness will drive it from him. Sadly, the problem is that many people become what they were potentially at birth because they were never properly instructed or restrained. So we have a massive responsibility as parents. In Psalm 58, 3, it says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they're born, speaking lies. In other words, they're wicked when they come out of the womb. They're liars from birth. They're depraved from the get-go. In Psalm 51, 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. In other words, when I was born, I was sinful, and realizing that has implications for our parenting. Why? Because not only do we want our kids to mind us, to behave, to conform, but we also want to turn their hearts to the Lord. No, we can't save them, but we can lead them as close to the water of life as possible. Right? We can show Christ to them clearly. We can minister not just to their outward behavior, but but to their hearts. So we have to deal with their hearts. We have to confront their wickedness. We have to show them the divine standard. We have to teach them the truth and help them to conform to that truth. And most of all, We have to lead them to the water of life and show Christ to them. See, our children, they're not little angels. They're corrupt little sinners who need to be led to the Lord. That's true. To help us understand this, one pastor noted that our children, you ready? Our children are miniature versions of us. Does that scare you? Right? So we have a calling by God, a responsibility, a duty, a mission as parents to raise up godly children who will love the Lord. And again, while we can't save our children, we can lead them to the water and we can make it easier for them instead of making it so very hard for them. What do we do? We bring them up in the training of the Lord. The word bring up has the idea of gentleness and forbearance. 
In other words, we're to patiently and gently and consistently and wholeheartedly be training our children. The word train means to teach with a warning in view. What's that mean? It's talking about discipline here. That's what it's talking about. Literally, it's talking about laying down rules and regulations that are enforced by rewards and punishment. And that's what we're called to do with our children. We say, here's the standard. We set it. We follow it. We hold you to it. If you meet it, we will reward you. If you violate it, then we will punish you. And that's what this word implies, training. Hey, parents, you must discipline your children. You must. If not, they will become monsters who run off in their sin. Listen to this, Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. So any father who really loves and delights in his son will discipline him. He will reprove him. He will correct him. Proverbs 10, verse 13. A rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding. What he means here is not that they don't have information. They just don't apply that. And so if you have a child who demonstrates a lack of wisdom in living, then What's it say? What's the word of God say? Get out the rod and use it on his or her backside. That's what the Bible says right here very clearly. Why? To be an instrument to inflict some discomfort to rescue our children's souls as Proverbs 23 says. Ted Tripp says it like this. Ooh, we're talking about spanking. Okay. A spanking is designed not to injure the child, of course, but to make the consequences of disobedience unforgettable. If your spanking leaves bruises or welts that are still visible the following day, you're striking your child too hard. Short stinging strokes to the backside where the natural padding is most plentiful will not injure the child but should be painful enough to make the consequences of disobedience sufficiently distasteful and unforgettable. And that's right. You you do this in wisdom. You don't do this in anger. You do it privately. You let the child understand why you have to do it. And then afterward, you teach the child and give him an opportunity to repent. And then you give him a hug after that, if he will hug you. (laughs) But the Bible is clear about this. And to ignore it is to disobey God. And it will have ramifications for the children. Proverbs 19, 18, discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. See, if you don't discipline your son while there's hope, you do indeed desire his death. And a lack of discipline will lead your child down a road to destruction. It'll lead him down a road of pain and struggle and perhaps even death, even eternal death. (coughs) As I flip through Proverbs looking for scriptures on parenting, most deal with discipline because it's so very important. And today, it's all about not disciplining your children. What is going on? No wonder things are so bad. Proverbs 22, 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. That's absolutely right. Foolishness is bound up in the heart. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. See, again, godly spanking is a consequence for disobedience, and that's what drives disobedience from him. It's the word of God here. I don't believe in it. Well, take it up with God. I, I, seriously, this is, this is what the Word of God says. Proverbs twenty nine seventeen. Correct your son or daughter. He will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul. Generally speaking, if you correct your child and discipline your child and make them live an obedient life, they will delight your soul. This isn't that complex. It's not rocket science. Set a standard. 
<laughs> live by that standard, correct to that standard. Is that a guarantee that our children will be wonderful and that they'll never be a grief to us? No. Is that a guarantee that our children will grow up to be Christians if we do all of this correctly? No. But these are general principles that are generally true and they are indeed biblical and to ignore them is foolish and, meant, and, and it's even mean to your kids. This is what they need. God knows what he's talking about. Proverbs goes on and says, if you don't do that, if you don't discipline your child in a God-honoring way, look, Proverbs says, he'll be a grief to his mother, a rebel to his father, a sorrow to his father, a disaster to his father, a disgrace to his parents, a humiliation <coughs> to his parents, and a user of his parents. None of that's good. And then look at Proverbs 29, verse 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but the child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. So, he'll shame you, and he'll be an embarrassment to you if you always give in to your child and give him everything that he wants, that little sinner. Don't do it. Uh, One pastor said it like this. (laughs) If If you want a child who's a grief and a rebel and a sorrow and a disaster and a disgrace, and a humiliation, and a user, and a shame, then don't do anything. But if you discipline that child, set a standard, live by the standard, and discipline to that standard, your children will love you, delight in you, and comfort your heart. That's true. Discipline. It's so important. Not so easy, but it's biblical. Now, spanking isn't the only way to discipline your child. Not at all. There are other ways for sure in which we should utilize. But spanking is a way (coughs) that's mentioned numerous times in the Bible And God knows what he's talking about. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God knows what he's talking about? I'm leading you on here. We're going down a road. You you can't escape it, right? Do you believe that God knows what he's talking about? Right? Okay, then. God knows what's best. So, So parents, how are you doing? Is your discipline godly or is it ungodly? Second, we must not only train up our children through loving discipline, but we must also bring them up in the admonition of the Lord. The word for admonition, nuthasia in the Greek, means to put in the mind, and it carries correction with it. So it's teaching your children the things of God, the things that have true wisdom, (coughs) the things that last forever. See, we're called to do that with our children. We're called to instruct them in what is right and to warn them about what is wrong and to do that purposefully and to do that tangibly. And the question is, do you do that? Really? Because it's your job, it's your responsibility, God says so. Deuteronomy 6, 6. The Shema. These words which I command to you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. (coughs) You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your Gates. That applies to all of us today, by the way, and the call is to be constantly, constantly, constantly teaching our children the truths of God all the time. All the time. So you first love God and His Word yourself, and then you teach these eternal truths to your children purposefully. And the goal is to seek to imprint God's truth on your children's hearts by what you do and by what you say formally and informally. The aim this. The Lord is the center of our home. The Lord is the center of our lives and everything else is rubbish. He is everything and our lives show forth that fact. Look, God is not to be an addendum to your life. He's to be the center of your life. Do your kids know that? 
Do you know that? God expects your kids to know that, and it's your responsibility that they are clear about it. So train them, admonish them, teach them, and diligently lead your children well in the ways of God while they are under your authority and and under your care. So get them in a good church. (laughs) Disciple all your children yourself. Do that purposefully. Disciple your children. We have resources for you if you want them. Model Christ at home and everywhere you go. Show your children that Christ is our all in all and that he's worthy of living for and of dying for. Discipline them and drive the sin out of them as much as you can and don't provoke them to wrath. No, prod them towards Christ and do it diligently and do it relentlessly for the glory of God. That's all. What a calling. What a calling. May God give us strength and may we move forward to being the children and the parents that God would have us be spirit-filled and for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so very much and we thank you for your word. Your word which is so practical for us. I pray that we would heed your word, that we would see your truth clearly and understand it and then that we would live up to it more and more for your glory. Help us to believe your word is true. And then, Lord, give us strength by your good spirit to follow through with these things more and more in our lives. What a challenge for all of us. But, Lord, we love you. So help us to rise to the challenge. And we love others. Help us to rise to the challenge. Bless us now as we go out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.